I thought I'd share this really fun interview I did with my friend Chris from the podcast Stories from Palestine. If you're interested in contemporary Palestine, I really suggest giving her podcast a shot. She's a licensed tour guide with the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism and really knows her stuff. In fact, her and a fellow tour guide, Salim, are offering three 10-day programs in March, June, and October of 2023. In this trip, visitors will stay with local Palestinian families and in family-run hotels. The tour includes visits of Bethlehem, Jericho, Abud, Nablus, and Yaffa, as well as Jerusalem. The groups have a maximum of 10 people, which makes it a very intimate experience for visitors. Their upcoming program is from the 13th to the 24th of March, and if you want to get in touch with her, you can visit storiesfrompalestine.info or look for Stories from Palestine on Instagram. And now, the interview. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians, there never was, there never will be. Today, with great pleasure, my guest is the maker of my favorite podcast that I listen to, and I have mentioned that in one of the previous episodes. The podcast is called Preoccupation, a not-so-short history of Palestine, and I think it's one of those podcasts that you have to listen more than once because it is so rich and full of information that only one time is not enough to really grasp everything. I want to welcome Bassam. Thank you for having time for us. We, you are in the Canada, so we have a big time difference. And I would really love for you to introduce yourself to us. Who are you and what is your podcast about? Thank you so much for the very kind uh, introduction. Uh, and for the listeners, we've been trying to put this together for a long time, but that time difference is very crippling. So uh, in addition to both you and I having children and having to work around their schedules, oh, yeah. uh, we finally we finally found a time that works. I'm very thankful for that. I, uh, I started my podcast. Oh, it's hard to distinguish between the time that I first uploaded to the, the kind of the moment that the thought came to mind. But I started my podcast uh, essentially in the middle of uh, 2020 during the pandemic. And uh, it wasn't the pandemic that actually got me started. It was uh, the fact that my grandmother had fallen quite ill. And I uh, suddenly had the urge to capture her story. Uh, my grandmother, uh, who passed away shortly thereafter in, uh, in the summer of 2020, she was our last window into the generation before the Nekba. And despite the fact that I've been kind of plugged into this subject my entire life, I only ever sat down with her once to talk about this particular subject. Now, 
as somebody who lives in Palestine and is very familiar with uh, Palestinians, you know that this is a, a, a difficult subject to speak with people about who actually went through this experience. And so while she w had fallen ill, I thought, well, she was going to recover from this, and I'm going to take that opportunity now to start asking her questions before it's too late. And sadly, I, I didn't get that opportunity. And so I set about kind of initially putting together, um, I guess, a work of family history. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to read one or two books on the Mandate era of Palestine, and uh, I'll, I'll have a pretty good grasp of what the time period was like. And then I thought, okay, well, I'll just I'll just read a book on the Ottoman era, and that'll give me a good grasp. And here I am now, years later, hundreds of books, hundreds of articles <laughs> into into what has consumed uh, my life, and it has transformed into something completely different. So the podcast now is really a, an economic, social, and political history of the land of its people. And uh, uh, it's it's formation toward or it's it's movement toward the formation of a national identity and a national project. Yeah, because that is what I really want to talk to you about. But before I start asking more and more questions, where was your family from originally and how did they end up in Canada? Like, what's your personal mm. story here? Okay, now I'm, I'm going to tell you a, a great family story. Um, so uh, I'm uh, from the Abu Nadi family. That's Abu An-Nadi. And we are from Yaffa, kind of. You see, the Abu Nadi family really uh, is the story of, of five brothers. Now, uh, two of them, uh, one being Al-Hajj Mahmoud and the other being uh, Ismail, both of their fathers died when they were very young. Now, Ismail lived in, uh, well, they both lived in, in Yaffa, but, uh, but when, uh, when Ismail's father died, his mother went to Al-Lid. And when Al-Hajj Mahmoud's father died, they stayed in Yaffa. Years later, uh, and this is after Al-Hajj Mahmoud, I'm not going to turn this into a whole family, <laughs> family episode, but uh, Al-Hajj Mahmoud had actually traveled to Argentina and come back to Yaffa. So uh, when he returned... He was at a market, and uh, so was Ismail. Uh, now, these two people didn't know each other. I don't know if they were at a, at a fish market or in like a bread queue or something like that, but one of the merchants yells out, Yeah, Abu Nadi, and both of them came to the counter. So he turned to the other and said, Who the hell are you? And the other said, Well, who are you? I'm Mahmoud Abu Nadi. I'm Ismail Abu Nadi. So Mahmoud took Ismail to his house, and he said, Mom, who is this? And she said, are you so-and-so's son? Like, you know, mentioned his mom. He said, yes. He said, Habibi, had Ibn Ammak. This is, this is your cousin. And the two became inseparable for the rest of their lives. Uh, Ismail is my grandmother's father, and Al-Hajj Mahmoud is my grandfather's father. Wow. So this is the Abu Nadi family origin story. It's a family that is both from Al-Lid and from Yaffa. After 1948, of course, uh, my grandmother and grandfather were ethnically cleansed from Yaffa, and my father was born in Al-Mukhayyim Al-Am'ari in Ramallah. So around, uh, around the corner from, <laughs> from it's, a, it's a neighborhood that you'd be familiar with. Yeah. Um, my father actually originally came to Canada in 1974. So he's been here for a long time. And uh, actually on the west coast of Canada, there were very, very few Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians um, at, uh, at that time. Uh, and this is how we ended up here. Uh, but 
as uh, anyone who's listened to my podcast and very early into my podcast, you'd recognize that Palestinian identity was very much a core part of my upbringing. Um, so despite the fact that my father came here in the 70s, I, like many Palestinians, grew up with a, a deep sense that we were connected to another place. And so you do speak Arabic, right? I do, yes. Although um, when I was like 12 or 13, I barely spoke any Arabic. I, my parents would speak to me in Arabic and I'd respond in English. Very common diaspora story. And then uh, in the year 2000, I went to Jordan for the first time that mattered. I had been to Jordan before that as, as an infant. And Jordan in, in 22 years ago was a place where nobody spoke any other language. Like you had to be from a really, really uppity, you know, <laughs> like a bourgeois family to have anyone that spoke English. And for three months, I, I was in Jordan and it changed my life because you're either going to speak Arabic or you just weren't going to speak for, for three months. Yeah. And, and that's not something I was capable of doing. And so, uh, and my my wife is from Iraq and, and we speak Arabic a lot at home. So uh, I, yeah, I'm a fluent, fluent Arabic speaker. But if I spoke for long enough, People locally would say, I don't think he's from here. Yeah, they'll notice the different so something, something is off about his Arabic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, a total total side point here, but diaspora Arabs in general have picked up little bits of other Arabic. So we all find whether they are Libyans or Egyptians or Lebanese or Syrians or Iraqis or Palestinians living in somewhere like Vancouver, anytime any of us go home, they say, you're using all of these words that are not from here, like you're using some Egyptian and Iraqi and, and all of our relatives in our ancestral homelands and adopted homelands, they all complain about the same thing. So it's part of the diaspora experience. Yeah, that's interesting. You have like a melting pot also of even the Arabic language of all the different accents and the different ways that you say things. Did you visit Palestine? Did you manage to visit? I have never been. And I have a, a friend who, uh, shout out to Chris Whitman, who I, I think you might know because I think you guys operate in, in similar circles. Yeah, Chris and me are all the time liking each other's posts on Facebook, but we haven't met each other yet. But there's a plan for coffee. He, he mentioned that. And uh, Chris and I speak uh, around the clock uh, every day. And he, he's always telling me um, that I should that I should visit. And I cannot uh, bring myself to subject myself and my family to that type of treatment in a land that belongs to me. It would be like getting a tourist visa to visit my own house. Sometimes I get asked, you know, I, I do a lot of public speaking and uh, people ask, well, you know, wh what would it take? What, what do you imagine your return to Palestine to be like? And I tell them, presumably uh, on horseback at the helm of a million refugees, but, but to visit... <laughs> But to visit as a as a tourist and have some some you know smug soldier pointing pointing an M sixteen in my face is uh, is not something I'm willing to subject myself to. No, no, I completely understand. Listen, I'm I'm very impressed by all the knowledge that you gained over the last years <laughs> because when I listen to your podcast, I learn so much information that I never learned here. Everybody who listens to my podcast regularly knows that I studied the tour guide program at the Bethlehem Bible College. I learned a very much there. Now I'm currently also studying the tour guide program in Jerusalem. And honestly speaking, most of what we learn is history that goes back to 2000 years ago, because, you know, pilgrimage, mm -hmm. we need to know the stories of the Bible. And then we get a little bit of these different time frames, 
where we learn who came here, the Crusaders and the Mamluks and the Ottomans, but we never go in depth into the era that you describe in your podcast. And that is also the era where the Palestinian identity is formed. And this is going to be the right. main topic of the podcast episode, because when I listen to, let's say, anti-Palestinians or Zionists, they always claim that there was no Palestine and that there were no Palestinians, that this whole national identity is something that was produced maybe in the last decades, but that it was a bunch of, you know, Bedouins and nomadic people that lived here. They came from other Arab countries. They didn't have any identity that was attaching them to this land. So when did Palestinians start to realize that they had a shared identity and that they were part of a nation? This is my main question, and we can break it down uh, in smaller questions, but I can also just let you talk. Well, no, this is this is a fantastic point to start, and I actually want to start. There are about seven or eight questions buried uh, buried into that, and I'll do my best to to dissect them. And I'll, I'll start with a very important point: Palestinians and their supporters, and their researchers, and their activists, and uh, the the pro Palestine community spends far too much time and energy and effort in what I call counter Hasbara, okay, responding to things that Zionists say. And not only that, but the presence of the Zionist troll community online and in the academic world and in the um, political space kind of constricts the way that Palestinians are willing and able to express themselves because many Palestinians, even when I'm speaking, will say, well, maybe we don't want to talk about this, not because it's not true, but because a Zionist is going to hear it and they're going to interpret it in this way and, 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 okay? Do not spend any time or any effort or any energy thinking about the way that Zionists are going to interpret your story and your work because they will never give you a fair shake. They will never give you an honest reading. So it's not worth it. Mm. Instead, tell your story with a debt only to the truth. Nothing else. How they interpret it, how they feel about it. Uh, because it's so much easier to tell a lie than to disprove it. To tell a lie, you just put it out there. If you have uh, a, a big enough media machine and enough resources and enough followers and whatever else you have access to, then you just put the lie out there and then, you know, the, you know, the, the people who are working toward telling the truth will spend countless hours and months and years disproving this. And uh, then they're just going to tell another lie and you're going to do it all over again. So don't bother. Good one. As for the question of, <laughs> thank you. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. So as for the question of uh, Palestinian identity, let's divide this into two questions. One is, where did a Palestinian identity or a national consciousness emerge? Which is a separate question from, where did the Palestinian national project emerge? Because those two are not the same thing, and they emerged at different times. So should I just dive in? Yes, please. I'm ready. Okay. So um, a national project is a combination of a few things. Uh, a national consciousness is um, a common story of the past, a common understanding of the present, and a common vision of the future, 
all rooted in a very specific geography. That is what a national identity is. So it's important for us to know what we're talking about before we try to understand what it is that we're looking for. And in order for this to emerge, a collection of technologies needed to exist first, because otherwise it was not possible to think on that scale. So we mentioned just before you started recording that you're from the Netherlands originally. And the Netherlands is not a huge country, right? Like, uh, I, I, I'm Canadian, so, <laughs> so by, by Canadian standards, the Netherlands is, is super tiny, right? Canada is enormous. Yeah. And so, something that I mentioned on a very recent episode uh, of, of my podcast is that 200 years ago, Canada would have been, could have been described as unimaginably large. And I mean that literally, not just large, but unimaginably large. And the Netherlands, which you think of as very tiny, was also in the imagination of somebody who lived 200 years ago, very, 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 very big. What you needed in order to to encapsulate your imagination into something that was realistic was something like a map, like a modern map. So that's one technology that needed to exist. A census was necessary. Because you needed to imagine, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen census maps, they're often, they often use like circles to uh, identify how densely populated or how big the population of a place is. Well, if you have no idea how many people live there, you don't really know if this is a significant town or a big town or a small town. Or you don't know any of these things. So you need information. You need things like uh, high-speed travel in order to be able to just share stories with other people, in order to be able to have this kind of common experience, you need newsprint to help establish a shared sense of common time. Now, nothing that I'm saying here, first of all, nothing that I'm saying are, are my original thoughts. A, a great book that captures this is, um, and really like the, the premier book that captures this is Benedict Anderson's uh, Imagined Communities. Um, but a, a really important part of this shared national consciousness are specific events that allow for a shared experience. Because every, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, a national identity starts with a common story of the past. Well, well, you need a bunch of events to trace back to in order to say, this is where we began or this is who we are. So, okay, that was a mouthful. I'll, I'll stop there and see if you have any questions before I ramble on. I don't really have a question. I'm just really curious to hear more about how and what sort of events that were for the Palestinian people. If we are looking at the history, how far back do we go also, you know, because we have a, a country that was a land bridge between so many, like three different continents and so many different societies, then to where do you go back to see what somebody's identity is? So yes, bring it on. Right. So I think the most important part of a national story, in order for it to be um, successful, the, the key ingredient is for it to be compelling more, more than anything else, right? It needs to be a good story. And in terms of how far back you go, that's part of making the story compelling. It helps if it's true. But if you look around the world, there are many national stories that were not rooted really in, in something that was objectively objectively true. I talk about that in the first season of my podcast a little bit. But an interesting place to start 
is uh, the rise of Zahir al-Umar, who I did a, a full episode on, who I refer to as the founding father of modern Palestine. Um, now, by the time, uh, this is the, the early, early to mid-18th century. And by the time Zahir al-Umar is born, Palestine is already overwhelmingly Arabic-speaking, overwhelmingly Muslim, with significant Christian and Jewish minorities, but you already have social classes in place as well, right? So you already have Fallahin, you already have urban Palestinians and their families, you already have Bedouin communities. So you have the key ingredients to begin to see something that looks familiar. It's it's not quite there yet, but you have all of the things, and, and it's not like Dahar al-Umar created these things. They already This was the world that he was born into. So you have these key ingredients that look like and smell like and walk like and talk like something resembling Palestine, but, but not quite yet. Now, I should say here, if we're going to talk about the toponymic identity of Palestine, so the place names, that's really old, like, like really, really, really old. But that doesn't always mean much. Um, I'll let that hang in the air for a bit, and maybe we could return to that. Return to that later. But Zahir al-Umar was uh, originally a tax farmer, which was a, a very important institution in early Ottoman Palestine. Uh, these were people that were allowed to collect taxes on behalf of the empire, and then they would skim off the top the difference between what they collected and what the Ottoman state wanted. Uh, this wasn't illegal. This this was the the purpose of that of that institution. Through a variety of spectacular accomplishments, uh, again, it's a it's an hour and a half episode I think that I have on him, so I'm not going to cover it all here. Zahir al-Umar created the economic space to kind of solidify a pseudo state, as it were. He uh, created this cotton monopoly. Uh, which then brought people from from villages all over Palestine to major urban centers, specifically Safad, Akka, uh, in in order to not for any political mission, but in order to just uh, accomplish what he wanted to accomplish economically. And this is what Nur Masalha refers to as a um, not a nation state, but a country state. So that is that he possessed a kind of institutional sovereignty over the place that we recognize as Palestine, but not with any shared story or shared vision or shared mission. But it created the circumstances that allowed for Palestinians to have a very distinct cultural experience. All of that made sense in my head, <laughs> but did it make sense to you? Because I'm trying to take a lot of information and, and, and condense it. So Dahar al-Omar then sort of rules over a group of people how do these people relate to each other? Do they relate as families or tribes? Do they know oh, yeah. what are the borders of Palestine? Or do they think more in cities or the places that they trade with? Their imagination would have been much, much more local. Yes, and they would have thought in terms of their cities, in terms of their economic guilds. So uh, the the people who are involved in their trade, Think about it another way. Like how many, how many relationships can you truly manage at any given time? Like psychiatrists talk about these things. I, I think the number is like seventy-five or, or something like that. And 
it takes those technologies that I referred to earlier for you to even be capable of imagining yourself in a bigger space. So they thought of themselves in the institutions that they recognized, their Sufi tariqas, their economic guilds, their towns, their family units. On the, on the biggest scale, I think that they would have been able to imagine themselves, would have been in the tribal alliances that existed at that time. Uh, and those are, that's a very interesting conversation in and of itself. But without the technologies that we, that we had in the mid-19th century, an imagination beyond that was just not possible. And it wasn't just impossible for Palestinians. It would have been impossible for everyone. The only people who are naive enough to think that they always had a national imagination going back infinitely in time are Zionists. Nobody else thinks like this. They are the only ones naive enough to think that. So these are people who very much understood that this was their land, and this is where they lived, and this is who they are. But relating to so many others in that way would have been very, very difficult at that time. What was the extent of Dahar Omar's... Um, did he have a kind of power, or he collected taxes from where to where? Yeah, this is, this is a great question. So Dahar al-Omar ruled as a sovereign... And I should be clear here, the, he grew so powerful that the Ottoman state at one point said, all right, enough is enough. Like We need to, to rein him in. And they tried and failed. So the Ottoman state could not bestow upon Dahar al-Umar the kind of titles that, uh, that would have been used in previous eras in the Islamic world, like Sultan or Emir. Or... So they called him the Sheikh of Akka. This is the, a title that they were willing to, to give him to say that you are clearly the person in charge here and we're not willing to call you a sultan or, or anything like that because that would that would be an acknowledgement of sovereignty that they were not willing to to give up and he ruled with or without their consent it didn't matter because he was the one in charge he had and, and this is the definition that i use of a state he had a monopoly on violence there was nobody who could who could challenge him and he ruled very much with the consent of the peasant population because the monopoly that he created, the cotton monopoly that he created, was in their interest. They were able to get better returns on, uh, on, on their product. Um, and so one thing that's very interesting that happens is that this era of strongmen stretches from the time of Dahar al-Umar, so like the 1750s, right, right to his death in the, the 1770s, through Jazar Pasha, Suleiman Pasha, Abdullah Pasha, this era of strongmen, right to Muhammad Ali al-Khadawi, Muhammad Ali of Egypt. And then with the emergence of the, the Tanzimat era and the Ottoman Empire's effort to transform into a nation state, to really modernize and become a, a modern nation state, the era of strongmen comes to a crashing end. So Dahar al-Umar creates the space for Palestinians to begin having distinct cultural experiences or distinct political moments that uh, would then make a Palestinian national identity possible. I think the more traumatic an experience, the better in terms of the development of a national identity. And in 1834, the Palestinians rise up in a mass rebellion against Muhammad Ali Pasha the, the Khedive who comes to rule Palestine uh, for a 10-year like a stint. And this experience 
become something that touches virtually every Muslim Palestinian. And I make that distinction because there's a, an important event that happens later. So let me drive this home. Um, so in 1834, urban Palestinians and rural Palestinians, as well as Bedouin Palestinians, unite together in a failed rebellion to drive out Muhammad Ali Pasha, not as a national revolt to become an independent nation state, but to bring the Ottoman Empire back. They just wanted things to be the way they were before. But the, the trauma of that experience must have spread like wildfire. It must have spread everywhere. And you live in Palestine, so you know that when people want to build relationships, stories of their family's accomplishments are very important. So people will, will traditionally say things like, you know, in, in, let's look at the context of marriage. If they're sitting down with another family, they'll say, I'm from the family of so-and-so, and we fought in the battle of so-and-so, and we took part in this, and we did this, and we were here. and we. So people would have exchanged stories about where they were when that rebellion happened. Did you side with the Khedive? Were you against him? What did you do? What did your family contribute? And those stories must have shared, again, this is not a, this is not a national movement yet, but it's just this proliferation of a shared experience in a very specific geographic space. But if you talk about Zahar al-Omar, what made him so different from other the, of the tax collectors? What made him so special? And why do many Palestinians not know about him? So if we go back to Zahar al-Omar, his, his peak was uh, 1720s to 1770s. And in there gives you the first hint. Zahar al-Omar lived for a really long time compared with his contemporaries. And, and this cannot be ignored. It was a very significant part of, part of his story. Zahar al-Omar was a very successful tax collector. He was good at his job. So there's one thing. And then an incident happens where the, the collection of families in Nazareth and the collection of families in Nabnus, and the families of Nablus were very powerful, they disputed over a very, very fertile plain, the Marjab and Amir Valley. So they took this to the Qadi of Jinin uh, to arbitrate over who actually owns this. Uh, now, uh, the, the basic laws of power would have been on the side of the tribes of Nablus. But geographically, like if you look on a map, you'd say this is much closer to Nazareth than it is to Nablus. And so comes the dispute. The Qadi of Jinin rules that it belongs to Nazareth, not Nablus. And the tribes of Nablus refuse. They say, well, we're not going to let that happen. So, you know, thank you for your arbitration, but no thanks. Zahir al-Umar intervenes. He is from Safuria. He, it's from a, a whole other place. He intervenes on behalf of Nazareth, and so swoops in as a sort of strongman and pushes the tribes of Nablus back and makes a very compelling case to the other Fallahin to say, join me, join my cotton monopoly, and I will make sure that nothing like this ever happens to you in the future. And they do. And one by one, he, he, he you know, Nash... <laughs> Things like this can spread in, in, in a few different ways, but probably the most common way that, like in human history, that someone like Zahar al-Umar emerges is through a display of overwhelming force, and that's what he does. And he just goes from one town to another 
and extends his sovereignty. Because he lived for so long, he was able to do this for, for such a long time. Now, of course, uh, he did many other things while extending the, his sovereignty, including building infrastructure, building, uh, you know, some... The Zionist project was very successful in, in erasing all evidence of indigenous life in Palestine. But some of Zahar al-Umar's relics still remain to this very day. Didn't he live in Arraba? I think part of his house is still there. I read something like this. I've never been there, but this is what I remember. Yeah, his uh, I believe his home still exists. There are a few things that he built that, uh, that still remain. And Akka swelled to become the, the second biggest city in the Levant, after only after Damascus. It was enormous during the reign of Zahar al-Umar. So his time was significant for creating that space in what we recognize today as Palestine, between the river and the sea and south of the Litani River, essentially. He created the space to make those shared experiences possible. The 1834 revolt created another traumatic experience that became a sort of benchmark for something that these people, very specific group of people, have in common. But the moment where a Palestinian identity really, really took off was with the establishment of standardized education. And this is, you know, this is my hypothesis, and it turns out that a, a now acquaintance of mine, Zachary Foster, um, did his... Uh, did his PhD on Palestinian identity and came to many of the same conclusions. And he's a better researcher than I am. So, <laughs> so, so I feel like I'm on the right track. But that's interesting. Yeah. I remember listening to your podcast episode about that. And it's interesting if you then find somebody else who comes to a similar conclusion, and this is a, maybe a totally new way of thinking about Palestinian identity. So yes, <laughs> right. enlighten right. us. So I did a recent episode on, uh, I'm, I am a school teacher, and I am obsessed with the, the um, not just what we learn in schools, but the experience of being in a school is is very powerful. Uh, so, if you think when in your town, if if you meet someone and you might ask them what high school did you go to, and even if they didn't go to your high school, you feel like they had a similar experience to you. But when you meet someone who was homeschooled you genuinely feel like there's something different between me and this person because they don't know what the cafeteria smells like. They don't know what it's like to rush to the washrooms at the end of the day. They don't know uh, what it's like to push through the parking lot and uh, try to get to your parents' vehicle and rush home. All of these things are very, very important experiences. So just the feeling of being in school was a very powerful shaper for Palestinian identity. And in the case of Palestine, missionary schools were the first modern schools. I, uh, again, I, I uh, urge everyone uh, who's interested in the subject to, to listen to the podcast episode about this. But, uh, but missionary schools were the first modern schools in Palestine. And initially, the Muslim families were not very interested in sending their kids to missionary schools for obvious reasons. But later starting with the Khalidis and the Husseinis and it spread to other notable families they kind of warmed up to the idea of possibly sending their kids to these schools and then later generations sent them quite readily in these schools muslim children and christian children and jewish children uh, jewish children to a lesser extent and I'll explain why in a moment but Mus muslim christian and jewish children sat together for the first time and they were 
subjected to a curriculum that was obsessed with Palestine because the missionaries were obsessed with Palestine. And so suddenly they have exposure to all of those technologies that I was talking about, like maps, right? Maps that you and your industry as a tour guide are the inheritor of. These, these are maps that were designed to cater to Christian pilgrims who were coming into Palestine by the thousands. And it was a highly biblicized version of what Palestine actually was. But it was something for them to imagine together. So if you were a notable who was from outside of Jerusalem, who was attending one of these schools, so if you were from wherever, if you were from Haifa or Biafa or something like that, and your parents mustered up the courage to send you to a school in a place that was not your home, like a boarding school, you got an experience that was the same as the experience of your co-religionists and your cross-sectarian neighbors. And suddenly, for the first time, you have all of these people. And, you know, it's impossible to pinpoint a moment where the light bulb of national consciousness suddenly emerged. But I believe it was there. I believe suddenly there, the language Mm. for a unique Palestinian identity began to emerge. And we are talking now about the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century or earlier? We're talking about from the first missionary schools are popping up in the early to mid 19th century, really begin to proliferate throughout that period. And then Ottoman state schools began opening around that same time. And Ottoman state schools were designed to rival the the missionary schools, in part, at least, as an effort to build an Ottoman national identity. But in addition to that, to protect Muslims from the impact of these missionary schools. Many Muslims also sent their children to the Alliance Israelite schools. So the um, the Jewish community were plugged into this network of schools that were sponsored by the French Jewish community. And the French Jewish community established these schools throughout the Ottoman world because they viewed their Sephardic cousins as uh, lesser than. (laughs) So, I mean, you could read their own literature and you make of that as you will, but they wanted to deorientalize them, essentially, make them more modern, make them more sophisticated. But the appeal of these schools for the Muslims of Palestine was that they did not proselytize. Uh, Many, many Muslims sent their kids to these schools, including, I believe, Saad al-Husseini went there, who became mayor of Jerusalem for a time was a member in the Ottoman parliament. I could be mistaken, but I believe that Rawhi al-Khalidi went there. These are, these are very important people in, uh, in early 20th century Palestine. And so they left with a level of literacy and fluency in Hebrew and an experience with the local Jewish community. But they also reported experiencing profound loneliness in, in these schools as well, which is maybe another subject. But it is in these schools that I think the national consciousness emerged. It's interesting. If we're talking about the Palestinian identity and heritage, then what kind of things are we talking about? And when you say that, yeah, there were also, there were Christians, Muslims, and Jews living here, then I wonder if you came across any information, if these Jews at that time would also feel something towards that identity and heritage. So can can you give us maybe some practical like examples of what was part of the identity? 
So when I say that a, a national consciousness emerged, what I mean is that they thought of themselves as Palestinian. That's the first thing. And if we take the writings of people who wrote at that time, that meant they were very much plugged into their Arabness and the Islamic and as well as Christian origins of that place. The Jewish story is interesting because you're constantly contesting with the Zionization of Jewish history. So it's very difficult to put a, put a precise finger on precisely how the Jews of the time felt. But there are a few really good books on this subject. Uh, one is Michelle Campos's Ottoman Brothers, which was one of the best books that I've read on that period. Louis Fishman wrote a book on the period as well. The, the name of the book is Escaping Me. And they have very different hypotheses about the time. So Michelle Campos writes that the shared experience of the time was sufficient to give people a type of shared identity. However, in both cases, and this is really important to mention, it was still common in the late 19th century for you to go through different communities throughout the Ottoman Empire and find multiple languages being spoken in different homes. It's really hard for us to imagine that in the modern world, but to be walking down the street and to find people speaking Hebrew and Greek and Arabic and Aramaic, like that, and we're not talking that long ago. In terms of very, very specific, okay, so, so there's that, and I'm kind of jumping over because I'm trying to answer so much, <laughs> kind of jumping back and forth between a few things. In terms of specific things like they ate this food where their neighbors did not, you know, their neighbors in Syria did not eat this, or they danced a particular kind of dance where their neighbors did not do this. Palestinians thought of themselves very much at the same time as Palestinian, but as an organic part of the Arab and Ottoman whole. The question that you're asking, like, well, how were these people distinct from the people on the other side of that river or somewhere else, they didn't put a ton of energy into making that distinction. Because the whether, whether we realize it or not, this is the point where the conversation starts to diverge from a Palestinian national consciousness to a Palestinian national project. The people of the time that I'm speaking about who referred to themselves as Palestinians and thought of themselves as Palestinians... They had advertisements at that time in the late 19th century that referred to Syria wa Palestine, right? Like the, the, this, these are not political manifestos. These are just advertisements clearly, clearly distinguishing between two separate geographic territories. And yet they would have never thought that we have to somehow distinguish ourselves culturally from Damascus or from Beirut or from, from somewhere else. Now, the reason why, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to put this delicately, the fact that Palestinians did not try to distinguish themselves as radically distinct from the Arab and Ottoman whole does not mean, this is why I hate counter Hasbara, does not mean that somehow these people are interchangeable with the people of Damascus and the people of Beirut and the people of Baghdad and everything else. That's not what I'm saying. Because they had unique personal experiences and unique 
family stories and unique political and economic and social ties in their specific geographic space, period. But did they try to say, no, we are different than everybody around us? No. No, they did not. No, that wasn't a thing. But maybe this is the point where we could start jumping from the Palestinian national consciousness to the Palestinian national project, if you'd like. I was just wondering if you think that the emphasis for the Palestinians to have more focus on that came with the Zionist project, that you want to sort of identify yourself more because you have people who are trying to deny your identity, or am I in the wrong track here? No, the presence of a of an other always helps in terms of defining your identity. There's, there's no doubt about this. But was the Zionist project the event that precipitated or the event that created a Palestinian national identity? No. Or was it the event that created a Palestinian national project? Also no. Okay. Um, if we fast forward a tiny little bit, right, to the turn of the 20th century, you had at once numerous competing visions for the future in Palestine. One vision of the future said that uh, the Ottoman Empire is on the right track. There was a, a revolution in 1908. Many, many, many people were, were happy with it. Okay, so uh, maybe that this has something to offer us. There is another vision for the future that says that the Ottoman Empire is decaying. We don't think that that's where our, our future energies should be invested. These are sort of the competing visions of the time. Still, an independent Palestine is the way that we understand it right now would have been not just out of the question, but would have seemed so unviable. Who would have desired something like that when you have these much grander political projects to be imagining? Rashid Khalidi has a, a line in his book titled Palestinian Identity that stuck with me. He said, in this time period, the future seemed pregnant with possibilities, most of them positive. <laughs> yeah. So it was a very hopeful time. Yeah. With the First World War, the Arabs of the Mashriq, the Eastern Ottoman Empire, so from, from Palestine to Iraq and the Arabian Peninsula, were very much divided on the question, do we stay loyal to the Ottoman Empire or do we defect? Once the war was over and the empire had collapsed, the question then became, does the Sykes-Picot arrangement offer us something or does it take something away? Does it present to us an opportunity through this terrible event that happened, right? This incredibly devastating war that killed between one third and a quarter of all of greater Syria. Is this, is this something good that has come out of this that we could take advantage of or has it taken away something? The two camps could broadly be described as such. One was a camp of honorable cooperation. So that is that if we simply persist in telling the colonial powers that we are sovereign, intelligent, civilized, then, then they will eventually recognize our independence and that these borders might have something that can work for us. Take a little bit from here, give a little bit there, but, you know, broadly speaking, the separation offers us something. The other camp perceived the, the words honorable, honorable cooperation is oxymoronic, that these two things cannot go together, that the only way to deal with the colonial powers is to resist them. By and large, the people of that camp were 
eager to either put the Ottoman Empire back together or engage in some other type of pan project, a pan-Islamic or pan-Arab or some type of, we could call them the unity camp. These were the divisions that defined the world immediately following the First World War. In the period between 1918 and 1922, the overwhelming majority of Palestinians were very enthusiastic about the prospect of being united in a world with their neighbors, with the Arab kingdom of Syria, that was the short-lived kingdom of Emir Faisal, with eventually with Iraq, uh, because they didn't think of themselves as constrained to a tiny sliver of land. One of the most fascinating things from this chapter, to kind of give you an idea of where Palestinians were at the time, when the Arab kingdom of Syria was declared, so the advisors around Faisal told him, like, this is what you have to do. The, you know, at the Treaty of Versailles, they're not going to recognize you. They are, they are tricking you. They're, you know, like, all of these things are happening in the background. And they push Faisal, the, the, what was called the Syrian Congress, pushes Faisal to declare independence of the Arab kingdom of Syria. And standing from a, a dais over thousands upon thousands of jubilant listeners who are waiting for this declaration is Azit Darwaza, a Palestinian from Nablus, who read the declaration of the independence of the, of the kingdom of Syria. So Palestinians very much considered themselves not just part of this project, but leaders of this project. There was, at this time, a unique Palestinian sense of self. But that sense of self was viewed as part of this grander political project. When the French arrived, when the French military came to crush the Arab Kingdom of Syria, an event that, uh, uh, that really peaked with the Battle of Maysaloon, and uh, the, the, the arrival of French rule, of total French rule in Syria. Musa Qadim al-Husseini, who then headed both the Muslim Christian Association and was really the most senior figure in the Arab executive, told those around him, southern Syria, that's what they called Palestine for that brief period in time, said southern Syria is dead. Now we need to work on a Palestinian project. And so... Palestinians went from imagining themselves as part of the Ottoman whole to imagining themselves as part of this Arab project and imagining themselves as part of the kingdom of Syria and then imagining a much smaller project. And this is really, I think, the most significant point in the birth of the Palestinian national project. Did they really envisage how that would look like? Or was that something that was in their minds, but was never something that they really worked on in more practical terms? The Palestinian National Project really responded to the circumstances. Now, just because Musa Qadim al-Husseini said that does not mean that all of the other projects died. You, at the same time, have events going on in Syria, you have events going on in Iraq, and, and this dream of dissolving the colonial borders never entirely went away. It still hasn't gone away. No. <laughs> right? Like there's there's st this dream is still alive somewhere, right? But the viability of it 
seemed more distant. So there was now two clear administrative zones governing the Levant. There was a French-ruled Syria, and there was a British-ruled Palestine. And with this division created two distinct challenges. In the case of French-ruled Syria, they had their challenges with religious minorities and minority rule and the cantonization of, of Syria and a whole bunch of really fascinating things that were that were happening there. In the case of Palestine, they had to contest with their forced minoritization or the threat thereof, because that is what they were looking at. So the Zionist project now gave them a very unique a very unique challenge that just was not replicated in any other mandate. In Iraq, they had other circumstances to deal with. In Syria, they had other circumstances to deal with. And in Palestine, they had very, very unique circumstances to deal with. And this is something that has been exacerbated over the course of Palestine's colonization. Whereas at one point, the entirety of the land between the river and the sea were contesting with this threat of forced minoritization. Now you have a distinct experience in the West Bank and a distinct experience in 48 and a different catastrophic experience in Gaza and a different experience where I'm sitting from in the diaspora. And my experience is also different from those who are living in the diaspora in places like Jordan or Lebanon. Mm. And this is what happens with separation. And you have to say that in that regard, the, uh, the various colonial projects that have descended upon us have been very successful. I realized that Palestinians who grew up in the diaspora and they know the stories about Palestine from their parents, great parents, that maybe they have also a very different sort of romanticized idea of Palestine. I've had some Palestinians coming here for the first time visiting and I, I always heard from them that there were things that they really loved when they came here and they felt overwhelmed because they recognized, you know, their culture and heritage. But there were also things that were really disappointing. For example, the traffic is crazy. Uh, there is so much zbele, which means uh, trash everywhere. And then they were like, oh, I didn't know it was so noisy. I had this picture in my mind of 18th, 19th century valleys and hills and nice little towns and women wearing, you know, traditional clothes. And yeah, things have developed in a very different direction. So it's very interesting also if you think now about Palestinian identity is like, where, where do we look at? Do we look at what, what, as you said, it is split between now so many different peoples with, again, different experiences. And yeah, I don't know, the Palestinian identity, it's very interesting, but I feel that every Palestinian, whether if you put now together somebody from Gaza, from Jerusalem, from 48, from West Bank, from diaspora, they will all still extremely connect on the fact that they are Palestinian. So there is something very, very special about that identity. And you can uh, uh, say about that, like, how do you feel? I, I do still want to connect it to, to one thing that I always hear um, from people around me, Zionist people and Israelis that I live around here, that they say, well, the last uh, so many hundred years, the people who lived here were Turks. You know, it was the Ottoman Empire. 
I even had a teacher the other uh, day who was like, oh, yeah, there's always this discussion about food, Palestinian food, Israeli food. He said, the whole food culture is Turkish. Look at the Turkish salad, he said. And I was like, um, sorry, but in the Ottoman Empire, it wasn't the Turkish people that lived here. You know, you had maybe some Turkish governors and soldiers here, but the people who lived here who prepared the food, they were the locals. Yeah, then he mumbled something about Bedouins and Mensaf. I was like, he made it sound like this region was just full of Turks. <laughs> no, yeah. no th and this is why uh, counter house bar is not worth the time uh, because there's zero validity to that to that claim. The only person who can say something that stupid would be somebody who doesn't understand anything about Turkish history either. Yeah. Right? Only, only someone. This is like when um, Zionists now try to appropriate every single Palestinian food imaginable, whether it's knafe or, or whatever, or mensef or anything else. And then they say, no, 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 you don't understand. See, we, we had these things in Iraq because we are from there. And uh, they think they're fooling us, right? Because they think that the people in Iraq and the people in Palestine eat exactly the same thing, so they can they can make a claim like that. This is idiocy. This is this is nonsense. So it's not it's not really a, a claim worth rebutting. The point that you said about that romanticized Palestine, though, I, I have a name for that. I call it the Palestine frozen in time. Oh wow! There, yeah, there is this very very specific period in Palestinian history that is preserved in family stories, in the few photographs of that era that gives this kind of uh, really like an imagined nostalgia. And that is the period that my podcast is at right now. Oh, yeah. Like that chronologically, where I'm at right at this moment is that it just we're just on the cusp of that Palestine frozen in time. Now, what's so fascinating about that or to, to me, okay, why I'm so passionate about this is because I imagine a future after Zionism. But in order to imagine that, I think the healthiest place to start is to think about where we were before Zionism. And the reality is we had so many challenges. Like there was a lot going on. When I said that there were all those competing visions about are we Ottoman, are we Arab, do we have a more regional identity like Syrian, these are things that were bouncing around all over the place at that time. And they were competing with each other and they complemented each other, but they also competed. People thought on a familial level. They also thought in the way that they did for hundreds of years prior, in their economic guilds, in their sectarian boundaries. They thought on, on all of these levels at the same time. And in a post-Zionist Palestine, it'll be a mess. Like you'll have people like me coming from Vancouver and, and Carlos coming from Chile and people coming from the camps of Nahr al-Barid and Ain al-Halwa and and Yarmouk and Al-Baqa, they'll be coming from all over the place and it'll be a mess, right? Like all these different expectations, all of these different desires, all of these different visions of the future, but it'll be ours and that's enough. That's okay. There is no nation on earth who ever operates in a perfect blank slate 
in a in a pristine vacuum, right? Where everyone just agreed on everything and everything was happily ever after, right? Every every project is messy and that's okay. I I welcome that. I've never heard somebody say this to imagine what Palestine will be like after the Zionist project. When you describe it, I can see all these people from all over the world coming back and just celebrating. And then just at some point starting like, okay, what we're going to do now. <laughs> and then maybe starting from the beginning to re-find themselves, to re-find the, yeah, the t togetherness. Yes. And, and this is, it's sad that more people don't think about this. They're uh, busier articulating the nature of the occupation, which somebody has to do, right? It's just, I find that work to be soul crushing and I, I don't do it, but somebody has to do it. But somebody else also has to tell the story of who we are and where we're going. And so I am maybe um, out of place in that I dedicate all of my energy there to helping identify, helping, helping Palestinians understand who we were and when we figured out that we are something distinct whatever that meant, because that meant different things to different people. And then figuring out at what point was this our mission to liberate this particular place between the river and the sea, like when that national project emerged. And we've talked about that, this conversation. But there's something that we actually haven't talked about yet. And I think this, you know, just looking at the time, this might be the, this might be the point to, to close off on, which is, how is it possible that given the absurdity of the combined forces against Palestinians, how is it possible that a thing like a Palestinian still exists? Right? Because, because no, nobody would have put their money on that. No. Like if you were, if you were a, a betting person in the late 19th or early 20th century and, and right throughout how how did that happen and i think that there are a few i think there are a few explanations to that so one simple explanation and i said earlier the more traumatic an experience the better in terms of preserving a national identity and there was very little that was more traumatic than the nakba like that the nakba really was the great leveler of palestinians it hit Falahi, Madani, Masihi, Muslim, like it hit across economic boundaries, across geographic, across sectarian, and everyone wound up in refugee camps, right? Or everyone wound up somewhere where they weren't just days prior. Yeah. And so that's a huge explanation. Like suddenly you didn't just have a shared experience, but a very, very vivid and similar shared experience. So without a doubt, the effort to extinguish a Palestinian identity certainly amplified it, yeah. not, not the opposite. But that's, that's not all. Like it, we, you know, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but, um, but we just wrapped up a World Cup where Palestinian flags were everywhere and the vast majority of the people waving them were not Palestinian. And for all of the failures of the Palestinian elite in the Mandate era, and there were a lot. Like there, there were a lot of uh, missteps and wrong turns and things they could have done, should have done, and would have done, but didn't. 
But for all of their mistakes, there were two key moments that that were like indispensable. Do I have, do you think I have like five minutes? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in the early 1930s, a global Islamic Congress was convened, specifically by Al-Hajj Amin, who I'm no particular fan of, probably not for the reason that Hasbarists emphasize, you know, his time in Nazi Germany and things like that. But even his, his position as a Palestinian uh, leader shows just constant missteps, almost comedic were it not so tragic. But they convene this Islamic Congress to bring the Muslim world's attention to the Zionist threat to al-Masjid al-Aqsa. And in this Congress, Muslims from India, Muslims from all over the Arab world, Muslims from everywhere, convene on Jerusalem and begin to understand what it is that's happening here. Right? And this, this was already proliferating in the press, but you could have seen at this, at this Congress important individuals from, from all over the Muslim world suddenly convening and, and seeing for themselves what was happening. But as was the case with Hajj Amin and his very healthy relationship with the British, he agreed to make sure that this Congress did not allow for antagonism of the British occupation. And so another Congress was held shortly thereafter. This one began in the home of Auni Abdul Hadi. And Auni Abdul Hadi was from the Abdul Hadi family of Nablus. He was also one of the top advisors of Emir Faisal during that period of the Arab Kingdom of Syria. And he, along with Azad Darwaza, along with Subhi al-Khadra, along with Rashid Ibrahim al-Hajj, like, along with all of these, you know, kind of, not, not people, I don't want to say people on the periphery of the Palestinian nobility, but, but maybe the most, most significant quality among them is that they were not from Jerusalem, overwhelmingly, the people who attended this meeting, who then put the revival of Arab unity back on the map after... It had been crushed in 1920 after another revolt in Syria had been crushed in 1925. They revived it, and they revived it in the form of the Istiqlal Party, Hezbollah Istiqlal. And it became Palestine's entry into mass politics. So not just the politics of notables, not just the politics of the elite, but really mass politics as we understand it today. And they, through their networks that were created and fermented in that experiment at sovereignty in Syria, in that Arab kingdom of Syria period, they then reactivated all of their old networks that had developed at that time. And Palestinian independence in the scope of broader Arab unity became one and the same. So in large part, because of their work, the obsession with liberating Palestine became not a peripheral, but a core piece of Arab and Muslim identity. From then on, you begin to see these Palestinian intellectuals everywhere. If you study Iraqi history of the 1930s, you know, you're sitting there reading about the curriculum that was being developed in Iraq in the, you know, I don't want to say the post-British period because the British were still there, but a period approaching independence 
well, they had their own education system that they ruled independently over. Well, it was Azad Darwaza and Akram Zu'aitar who were writing their books, right? There were Palestinians who were there. Uh, you start looking around all over the region, you find these same individuals proliferating the importance of Palestine as an organic part of the Arab world. And it became an integral focal point of the collective identity of, of not just the people in Palestine, but the region. <laughs> I want to go on and on, but you are right. We have one hour and 12 minutes. And I think I, I want to give you the last word to, to wrap it up. But I, we can also refer people to your podcast because there is so much more and they can all listen to that, to preoccupation, a not so short history of Palestine, where I think you make a great effort to talk about Palestine, not as we always tend to do now in relation to Israel, the state of Israel in relation to Zionism, but really what is the Palestinian identity and what is Palestine before all of that? If there's anything you want to add briefly that you feel like this is a point that should be made and that listeners of this podcast should know, then do it now and otherwise listen to your podcast. Yeah, actually, if there if there was a note I would give your listeners, it would be this. I tell every audience that I speak with, dreams are for free. So... We are only limited by our imagination. I want to give you two distinct visions, and I, and I want the listeners to really understand this. Today, we are no closer to getting Yaakov Fauci out of the home of the Kurd family in Sheikh Jarrah. We are no closer to that than we are to the liberation of all of Palestine. So if your petty dream is distant and your big dream is distant then dream big yeah <laughs> yeah don't 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 bother settling you shoot for the moon it's okay and the the moment that the palestinian dream dies is when you stop having it when you stop carrying it in your heart and i'm the biggest dreamer there is that, that no for for me i i have a vision for my children where they can fly into Baghdad and drive to Damascus and then take a train to Al-Quds and watch the sunset in Gaza all in the same week without anything more than the fare for travel in their pockets. That's, that's my dream for them. Now you make me tear up. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? It, it means I've done my job. You did. <laughs> yes. We have a dream. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, dream big. Thank you so much, Bassam. That was an incredible interview. I really enjoyed that. I could listen to you forever and ever. And you know what? The good news is you can listen <laughs> forever and ever to you. Go to Preoccupation, the podcast. I'll add a link to the show notes of my podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. This was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you.